Well, please do keep your Bibles open at that uh, reading from 1 Peter. We'll be spending some time there today. And let me add my welcome to that of Matt and the gang and uh, say it's lovely to see you all here. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we have already sung of your, your glorious nature, the wonderful things you've done and how praiseworthy you are. And so we pray now as we come and look at your holy scriptures, that you would cause them to come alive to us, that you would speak to us, that we would hear these words as your words, your voice speaking to us, and that you would change us for our good and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. You're in the staff room or the canteen. Some colleagues are talking about gay marriage. One person gets really angry. She says, you know, I'm sick of hearing church leaders come on the TV and condemn gay people. Haven't they got anything better to do? And why is it any of their business? What's wrong with two people who love each other and just want to be together? And another person turns and says, you're a Christian, aren't you? What do you think? You're at the pub quiz. One of the questions is about heaven and hell. Someone on your table pulls a face. The smartest guy in the team says with disgust, heaven and hell? For goodness sake, this is the 21st century. Why would anyone believe it now? It's positively medieval. And then he looks at you and says, you don't believe in that, do you? You're at the local shop. You're chatting to Hitesh and Jyoti, some new neighbours who are really lovely people. And Hitesh says, you know, you're a Christian, I'm a Hindu. But religions, basically, they're all the same, aren't they? We all just want to live a good life and do our best. And God likes that. What would you say? You're having a meal with some friends. One of them says, I actually did the Alpha course. And I started going to church, but I won't go back because Christians are such hypocrites. Now, having raised those controversial issues with you this morning... I'm not going to attempt to deal with any of them, (laughs) so sorry about that, but I do want to approach them on another level, because whether you're having an awkward conversation about same-sex marriage, heaven and hell, the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, or the failures of the organised church, what you are experiencing is a widening gap between Western culture and the Christian faith. And three of the most common criticisms levelled at Christians are that they are intolerant, arrogant, and hypocritical. Intolerant, arrogant, and hypocritical. So how would you respond? I'm going to speak mainly to Christians here today. I know not all of us are. Many people here are looking into the faith. I'm going to speak mainly to Christians. The American preacher J.D. Greer tells a story of being in a roadside diner restaurant. And he heard a conversation between a customer and the waitress about God. The customer said, I've suddenly come to realise that the most important question in life is, who is God? You know, life is short, it will end, and then you're going to die, and you're going to meet God. So knowing about God is the most important thing in life. And then he paused and said, well, my problem is, how can I? There's so many things out there about God. How in the world are you going to know what's true? And J.D. Greer thought this was his moment. And he actually started to put his hand up to answer the question. And then the waitress said, that is a great question. I don't know what to believe sometimes. 
But you know who I hate? It's those born-again Christian types. Because the moment you bring up the subject of God, they think they know all the answers. They don't even know you. But they're so quick to ram their beliefs down your throat. And she turned and said, yes, sir, to J.D. Greer, who still had his hand up. (laughs) So he said, do you have any ketchup? (laughs) How do you respond to accusations of intolerance, arrogance, hypocrisy? Some respond by fighting. They take an aggressive stance towards the culture. They dig in their heels and stick their jaw out. They refuse to listen. They develop an arsenal of arguments. They're committed to the Bible and to truth, but somehow they've lost sight of the person on the other side of the table. And you know it's possible to win an argument and lose a person. Others respond by hiding. Some Christians have developed the personal equivalent of Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. You can put it on and disappear. They leave the front door in the morning and they put the cloak on gone. It only comes off at church meetings. So if you've been standing in the cafe area down here and someone suddenly appeared next to you, that's what they were doing, taking off their cloak. Now, other people respond by compromising. Whenever the heat gets turned up on an issue in a culture, some Christians get out of the kitchen. They look at the Bible and they think it can't possibly mean that, so they come up with some kind of alternative twisting of the words. Some Christians are now doing this on same-sex marriage. And let me say, it's often Christians who have real friendships with non-believing people who are most tempted to compromise. Because you feel their pain. You feel the awkwardness. You feel the issues. And when those issues get really personalised, you feel most tempted to redefine the Bible. How do you respond? Are you kind of fight or flight? Now, there is a better way. Peter says this, it's to live a life of glorious dignity. A life of glorious dignity. That's what our reading today is all about. And I'm going to focus on verses 9 to 12. Just a few verses. Because Peter here is finishing this incredible portrait of what it means to be a Christian. He says it's a new identity that's been given to you. It's like a new birth. And then in verse 9 he says, he kind of uh, ramps up. Uh, And he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's trying to get his readers to rethink their identity. Last week we thought about how he tells them that they're living stones built together to form a kind of spiritual temple. Now he says, the non-Christian world may accuse you of doing wrong, but your response is not fight or flight, but to live a life of glorious dignity. How? Three things. Stand up, speak up, and live a conspicuously good life. Stand up, speak up, and live a conspicuously good life. Firstly, stand up. Peter wants to get people who are suffering, people who are battered, people who are despised by their culture, people whose heads are going down, to lift their heads up, to stand tall, to put some steel in their spine and a spring in their step, to help them to march, not slink along. And so he says, you are four things, a chosen people, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. A four-part description, all drawn from the Old Testament. Firstly, a chosen people. This comes from the prophet Isaiah. Now, the word people can be translated race, and it is in some Bible translations that you may have in front of you. Now, the word race is accurate, but can be problematic. It's become that since the 20th century. This means people who are descended from a common lineage, a common ancestry. This means that Christians are a new race of people among humanity. Now, this is a radical claim, isn't it? How do you think of yourself? Would you say, I'm Nigerian? I'm Chinese? I'm Irish? I'm Indian? I'm English? Peter says, no, you're not. Not if you belong to Jesus Christ. You are now part of a new race, a new people group, chosen by God, a chosen people. So, what that means is, if you are a Christian... You have more in common with another Christian than with a non-Christian person from the same ethnic group. Right? I have more in common with a Christian Indian than with a non-Christian Brit. We're actually from the same race. So this claim actually means ultimately the end of racism. Chosen people. Secondly, a royal priesthood. Now this phrase comes from Exodus chapter 19. We uh, heard uh, Michelle reading it earlier on. Peter reaches back about 1,500 years in history to the time of the exodus from Egypt when God's people were rescued from slavery and sent on eagle's wings to Mount Sinai to receive his guidance. And Peter here draws from the language that made Israel into a chosen nation. It's language of covenant, language that's binding and solemn and serious and, and profound. You're to be a royal priesthood, God says to those slaves who've just been rescued. Now that is a magnificent title. Royal priesthood. The priests were a privileged group. They served God full time. They were holy people. They had special access to God. They were also mediators. They stood between the people and God and represented people to God and told the people about God. Now why royal Because Christians are serving the King of Kings. This is a bottle of uh, Liam Perrin's Worcester sauce. It looks like it's been in my cupboard for about 100 years. On the front it has this little kind of logo and it says, By appointment to Her Majesty the Queen, purveyors of Worcester sauce, Liam Perrin's Limited, Worcester. I'm glad they're in Worcester. Seemed wrong if they were somewhere else. They're by appointment to Her Majesty the Queen. That means this company has a royal warrant of appointment. There's one on that bottle of sauce. You've probably seen them on other products. There are actually more than 800 royal warrant holders. Cadbury's are appointed cocoa and chocolate manufacturers to Her Majesty the Queen. Kellogg's are purveyors of cereals to Her Majesty the Queen. Paxton and Wickfield are cheesemongers to His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales. Now, with respect, I can top that. The Apostle says, if you're a Christian, you're appointed a priest to serve the King of Kings. The living God has called you to serve him. You may have heard of the the phrase, the priesthood of all believers. We don't believe that we have priests and laity. 
that because uh, I'm full-time for the church and I've been uh, trained theologically and, or commissioned to lead, that I'm somehow in a different category. We're all on the same level playing field. We're all priests, right? So he says here, chosen people, a royal priesthood. Thirdly, a holy nation. Here we've got this idea of holiness again. This time it's in the, the context of being a nation. So that means to become a Christian is to change your passport. To change your passport, to get a new national identity, a new citizenship. So now you're no longer just a citizen of the UK or India or Nigeria or China. You have dual citizenship. You belong to the Jesus nation. And this was a dangerous thing to say in the first century. Christians in the first century were not persecuted because they worshipped Jesus. Who cares about one more God? There's loads of gods. They were persecuted because they said that Jesus is the one true God to be worshipped and that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That's why they were persecuted. So them being exclusive, their exclusive allegiance was seen to make them bad citizens. They had to make a choice. So let me ask, do you think of yourself like this? That you belong, your primary identity is that you are a follower of Jesus. You're a Christian before you are anything else. Fourthly, he says that you are God's special possession. Now, God owns everything, doesn't he? But he did say that the ancient Israelites were the one people in the world that he claimed specially for himself. They were his people. They lived for him. They made his greatness known among the nations. They were the most privileged people in the world. And Peter says, that's now applied to the church. Now, if you are God's special possession... How much did he pay for you? How much did he pay for you to buy you? What did it take to acquire you as God's possession? You know the answer. You were not bought with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So how precious do you think, Christian friends, you are to God? Does he have anything that he values more highly? Peter takes these four descriptions... And he applies them to the church. He says, you know what? You belong to God. And you belong to each other. It's a marvellous description. It spells privilege. It spells dignity. And if you know that's who you are, then you can withstand shame and humiliation. If you know that's who you are, then you know you are part of God's strategy to reach out and rescue a broken world. So stand up. That's the main point of, of saying all this. Stand up to get people who are tempted to hide or tempted to compromise or tempted to be ashamed of Jesus. To stand up, to walk tall, to hold your head up high, to live with confidence. The Apostle Paul says, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How would he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, height, death, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, Jesus, our Lord. What a privilege. So stand up. Don't be ashamed. 
Don't be shy. You're a son and daughter of the living God. Now, here's the interesting thing. These privileges, you know, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy people, special possession, these things are not actually primarily for your benefit, although you do benefit from them. They're not primarily for you. They're actually primarily for the benefit of your neighbor. As far back as Abraham, God's people have been called in order to be a blessing to the whole world, not just a blessing to each other. So that's why Peter immediately says, speak up. Here it is, verse 9 again. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now that is the first half of your job description, Christian friend. Your first half of your job description is that you've been called to declare the praises of Jesus. What does that mean? The language is a bit obscure. Well, let me give you an example. My wife was away this week for six days visiting family. She took three children with her. And although I missed all of them, I'm not going to hesitate to say I missed Melissa the most. Why? Because being around Melissa makes my life really interesting. (laughs) Melissa is basically a force of nature. She just seems to be more alive than anyone else I've ever met. I'm not saying it's always plain sailing. We can go from calm waters to hurricane conditions in next to no time. But there is never, ever a dull moment. I've never been bored around my wife. And it's partly because she pushes me to excel. She gives me confidence. Also because she challenges my sin. She helps me change and be more like Jesus Christ. She doesn't let things go. And I thank God for bringing her into my life 15 years ago. What a gift. People use the expression, my better half. You know, some men used to talk about their better half. Now, in my case, it's definitely true. Definitely true. She has changed me forever. Now, do you see what I just did? I declared the praises of my wife. Right? That's all it means. It means to announce something or report it or tell it. Some of the psalm writers use this word. Here's a couple of examples. Psalm 71. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. Psalm 73. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Psalm 79. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Telling, recounting, declaring. You see what these people are doing? They're just talking about the wonderful things that God has done and how wonderful God is in himself. Now look, I know this is particularly hard for British people. So I'm going to speak to British Christians for a moment here. Okay, Everyone else can just listen in. This is very hard for you to do. I know that. It's very hard for you to talk about God. I know. So some of you think that you are supposed to be a silent witness who's living a good life and just only ever speaks about God when you're called upon. You are wrong. You were called to declare his praises. So speaking about God once every five years is really not that, is it? Other people see it as their job to convert people. 
You're always on the lookout for an opportunity. Now, this was parodied in, in a 90s TV series called The Fast Show. The Fast Show had a, a, a sketch, a really awkward sketch, where some earnest, born-again Christians would seize an inappropriate moment to talk about Jesus. And they always ended the, the sketch with the words, he died for all our sins, didn't he? So someone would be eating a meal, and they'd say, this steak's quite bloody, and they'd start talking about the blood of Jesus. And then they'd sort of end by saying, he died for all our sins, didn't he? And Now, the writers of the fast show probably weren't Christians, but they were very shrewd observers of life. And they put their finger on something in those sketches. It was the lack of connection that the Christians had with the people they were talking to. And the forced conversational leap. It's awkward for everyone. It's like a really bad gear change. Everyone can spot someone who's trying to sell you something. You can spot it, can't you? Everyone can spot a leading conversation. You can smell it. And I don't like it when someone is trying to control me through conversation. Do you? I don't like it when someone's trying to force their point of view on me. Do you? So Peter is not saying, do that. Peter is saying, declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have. So this must mean that you just take the natural opportunities to talk about the things you love. And if you're a lover of God, you will talk about him at times. Let me give you a couple of natural examples of this. We've got a gentleman in our church who is a mad keen cyclist. He's got about five or six bikes in his house. He's got bikes in the bedroom. He's got bikes in the hallway. And he knows everything about bikes. And he totally despises my bike. But when I talk to him about bikes, and I, I, he, he talks about getting people together and going on a bike ride and how much fun it would be. And he'll do a bike ride for uh, some beginners and, and a bike ride for people who are really serious and crazy. And they'll go and cycle for 20 miles. And he, he cycles everywhere. And it's just it's because something about it is a bit infectious. So even I have actually thought I might go on a bike ride with him. Just because it's, he loves it so much. Another example. One of my neighbours has recently got a plot in the allotment over in Withington. And he's really got into it. So I saw him yesterday. He had this sort of silly hat on, sun hat kind of thing. I said, what are you doing? Oh, I've been in the allotment, digging it over. I'm going to plant some potatoes. I'm going to do this, that and the other. And he said, why don't you come down? It's really fun. We could grow some beans together. <laughs> and I, I tell you, I'm not into that sort of thing. I'm not a gardener. I've actually started thinking, I went home and said to Melissa, why don't we get half a plot of an allotment with them? Just because, just because it was kind of interesting and infectious and it's something that he does, that he enjoys. Now, let me ask you, do you enjoy being part of the people of God? So could you talk about it with genuine enthusiasm? I do this. I'm always telling people, especially our Catholic friends, and most of our friends of our age are Catholics in this city, I would say our church is, 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 I love being there. It's really young. Most people are under the age of 35. It's really diverse. We've got about 15 different nationalities. People go, wow, that's interesting. You've been to Catholic church, they're all white, and most of them over 50. I say, we're trying to serve the local communities where we live. We've adopted a couple of parks, picking up litter, really. Ooh. I say, we love eating together. We always have food whenever we meet. Oh, right. 
You talk about being in the people of God. Just naturally. It's not made up. And have you received mercy? Was there ever a point in your life when you realised that you'd offended the King of Kings and you turned and you went down on your knees and you asked him for forgiveness only to find that he'd already forgiven you a long time ago? Was there ever a time in your life where you had sinned and felt awful and then realised that the love of God is so deep it has no limits? Was there ever a time in your life when you realised that God knows everything you've ever done and yet he loves you all the same because of his rich mercy? Now, if you've discovered that, can you declare his praises? Can you talk about how great Jesus is, just naturally? Do you see how just sharing a natural enthusiasm is far more persuasive and attractive than going into sales mode? We were called to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that we may declare his praises. Once we were homeless, now we're the people of God. Once we'd not received mercy, now we have such mercy. John Diamond was a journalist for the London Times. I think he was married to Nigella Lawson, actually. He died of cancer in March 2001. And he was known for a very honest, very insightful set of articles that he wrote about cancer. Two months before his death, he wrote a a respectful article about the many Christians who'd read his column and had emailed him with spiritual answers. Now, this is interesting. This is what he said. There is no level at which the evangelists and I can engage. There is no level at which the evangelists and I can engage. They tell me about their spiritual product as if I might not have come across it before. As if in 47 years of living in a Christian country, I might not yet have stumbled upon the concept of Christ as Redeemer. They don't seem to understand that I can't force myself to believe what I don't believe. Which is the point at which agnostics usually say, I only wish I could believe. And I used to say that myself, but I've discovered it's not true. I'm happy not believing. And that's what the evangelists don't seem to understand. You see what he's saying? More and more people are like this. They're not hostile to or uninformed about Christianity They may be interested in spiritual things. They may be prepared to face difficult issues. But the church is the last place they will look for answers. Because for most people today, the church no longer says anything worthwhile. It's just not even on the radar. It's irrelevant. Now, what is the answer to that if you're a Christian here today? Not to cry in our beer and give up. Jesus is still Lord of the universe but to stand up, speak up, and, finally, live conspicuously good lives. Because it's only when people actually see the difference that the Christian gospel makes that they will be at all interested in listening to it. It's only when they actually see that it works, that it works, that they will think it has any credibility at all. So, Christian friends, the quality of your life and the quality of our church community is what will make all the difference. Stand up, speak up, and live a conspicuously good life. Turn with me back to our passage on this final point. Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against, sorry, wage war against your soul. Live such 
good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, what is a conspicuously good life? Peter says it has two aspects, abstinence and excellence. Abstinence and excellence. Abstinence. Abstain from sinful desires, he says. Now, what are they? This word uh, desires means an inordinate, over-the-top craving for something. And you can have this about anything. You actually have an inordinate desire for something good. You may like chocolate. But if you crave chocolate, if chocolate dominates your horizon, if you, you eat too much chocolate, if chocolate is making you fat, you've got an inordinate desire for it. You may be wired up to enjoy sex. Most people are. But if the thought of sex and the need for sex is dominating your behaviour and you, you, you seek out inappropriate channels to have sex with yourself or with somebody on a screen or with somebody you're not married to, then sex has become an inordinate desire. So we can have these sinful desires for anything, for material things. Comfort eating and therapy shopping. We can have inordinate desires for alcohol. Because it's the only time in the day when you feel peaceful. You can have an inordinate desire for, for being accepted. Maybe why you've got your invisibility cloak on. Now, how, why should we abstain from sin? What would you say? Why should you abstain from sin, Matt? Because we've been told to. Because we've been told to. Oh, thank you for giving me the answer I wanted. Peter doesn't say that. Love it. We didn't work that out beforehand. <laughs> He doesn't say because I've told you. He says because it's self-harming. Abstain from sin because it's self-harming. Well, he actually says it wages war against your soul, against who you are. Sin always injures the sinner. Sin is bad for you. You should have a government health warning on it. So the answer is to abstain. Stop smoking, stop sinning. In the words of the old anti-drug campaign, just say no. Don't entertain sin. Don't excuse it. Don't indulge it. Don't give it an inch. Always takes a mile. Abstain. Cut it out. It will hurt you. Sin is stupid. Don't do it. Now, on its own, that would be a kind of negative message, wouldn't it? Like the pack of cigarettes with a skull and crossbones on it. Peter doesn't end there. He ends with excellence. You, to live a conspicuously good life, you don't just abstain from sin, but you, 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 you live such a good life among the pagans that even if they accuse you of being intolerant, arrogant, hypocritical, doing wrong, they will actually see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And the day God visits you isn't like the day that your gran visits you. It's the end day, the day of judgment. Quite a big day on the global calendar. The day when God visits us is the time, Peter says, when some pagans who accused you will actually end up praising God because of you. Such good lives. He says, live, live such a good life. Could be translated noble, praiseworthy, beautiful. So let me ask, is your life good? Is it noble and praiseworthy and beautiful? Beautiful. 
If you left your job tomorrow, would anyone notice? And what would they miss about you? If you moved house this week, would anyone notice? What would they miss about you? Notice that Peter says you're living good lives among the pagans. That means the pagans actually have to be able to see you. That means coming out of your house and doing things like a community choir. There's a bunch of more than 100 houses in in Manchester owned by a family that go to a big church. And those houses, some of them, are all in the same streets. And they're sometimes called the Christian ghetto. Kind of a joke name. Now, it's okay to live in one of those houses, but it's really not okay to live in a Christian ghetto, according to Peter. You have to be among the pagans. So if all your friends are Christians, get some new friends. If Grace Church Manchester closed down next week, who would notice? Who would miss it, apart from the members? What difference do we make to this city? Now earlier on I quoted a man called J.D. Greer with his, uh, put his hand up and asked for the ketchup. He wrote an article called Adopting a School. I want to share it with you. I'm going to read it. I think it's so interesting. I'm going to risk a long reading, which you should never do in a sermon. In 2004, God convicted our church that we were not displaying the generosity of the gospel to our community. I was teaching through the book of Acts, and he came to Acts chapter 8. The crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. So there was much joy in that city. And so J.D. Greer asked his church if there was much joy in the city as a result of their presence. Then he read the story in Acts chapter 9 of the Christian Tabitha, who had the toughest nickname in the New Testament, Dorcas. She had done so many good works and acts of charity that when she died, a group of widows gathered at her bedside and wept. If the Summit Church died, I asked, would needy people weep because we were gone? We believe the answer to those questions was no. If anything, our community might have been excited that we were gone because they would regain access to our tax-exempt property and get one less Easter invite card cluttering their mailbox. We resolved that with God's help, we would become a blessing to the city to demonstrate Christ's love to them, to bring the manifestation of his healing to the places that needed him most. Shortly after, God brought to our attention a very underperforming elementary school, that's a primary school, in the inner city. It was the worst-ranked school in the county and was on track to be shut down within two years. Over the next years, we led several projects for that school. Many of our people started tutoring children. Small groups adopted classrooms and teachers, housed refugees, and met physical needs of families in the school. One couple in the church who were going to get married asked that any gifts for their marriage would be redirected to a family in the school whose house had been burnt down in a fire. As the first year ended, the principal, the head teacher, asked if we would pray for the kids during the end of year exams because the school would be evaluated chiefly by their scores. We are gladly obliged. By the fourth year of our involvement, the school had the highest percentage of children past their end of year exams of any school in the county. 
And the head teacher officially credited the church's efforts with helping to improve the school's academic performance. At a banquet of teachers, one of the teachers said, I've always known you Christians believe you should love your neighbour, but I've never known what it looked like until now. In 2010, Greer was invited to speak at the city's annual Martin Luther King rally, very important event in the South. It is televised, and all the city and county and government officials are there. They asked me to explain why we thought it was important to love our community. Just before the programme started, I stood backstage extremely nervous. The county manager, sensing my anxiety, put his hand on my shoulder and said, JD, do you know why you've been asked to speak today? I said, no. And if you could tell me, I'd really appreciate it because I'm very nervous. He said, everywhere in our city we find a need. We also find people from the Summit Church meeting that need. We couldn't think of anyone to better embody the spirit of brotherly love in our city than you at the Summit Church. And then in front of the entire city government, he explained that the church's generosity was a response to the radical generosity of Christ towards us. Christ had done for us what we could not do for ourselves, so how could we not extend that to those in need? When I finished, the school board, the mayor, and the city council gave a standing ovation. Now he says... Our kindness to the people of the city is only a dim shadow of what Jesus has done for us, but it has helped people in our city understand more of what Jesus is like. It has helped to create more hunger in Raleigh, Durham, for the gospel. Do you see how this fits together? What is the answer to those criticisms of intolerance, arrogance, and hypocrisy? It is a church community that is loving, humble, and authentic. You can't really sustain the argument that Christians are all hypocrites if if every Christian you meet is actually really deeply authentic. You can't sustain the criticism that Christians are intolerant if they are the most loving and gracious and humble people you come across. What will make agnostics, atheists and others listen to the gospel message not by us shouting louder, but by living a conspicuously good life and doing it together? And then the most glorious thing can happen. Pagans who have accused you of doing wrong, see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Slanderers end up as worshippers. Wouldn't that be wonderful? People end up praising God because of you. Because you stood up, you spoke up, and you lived a conspicuously good life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've heard your words from the Apostle, and they are strong words. They're words of strong courage and comfort, and they've told us things about ourselves we would scarcely believe were true. You've called us to something remarkable. You've called us to be the most privileged people on earth. And you've also called us to be those who bear a light, who, 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 who speak out and go out and love. And so we pray, dear Lord, help us. We're so weak. We're so frail. We we struggle even to live our own lives, let alone do anything for other people. We just feel very fragile. We ask, give give us strength, give us courage and grace. And we pray, we beg you, that you would do great things through this church 
and through City Church that's planting soon, and through all the other gospel churches around this city, that Manchester would know, would never be able to deny that the love of Jesus is being exhibited here by God's people. Because we pray for Jesus' glory and his fame. Amen.